I'm Sean Zimmerman-Wolf. I'm Caleb Merrill. I'm Laura McGladry. I'm Jake Hutchinson, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. The, the culture in ski patrolling, at least from my experience, is that you work really hard and you play hard. And, and I was happy to be part of a culture that celebrated working hard. I saw my anger mirrored back at me by my son. So I'm not able to uh, really express in any words how that impacted me. And I knew that it was a problem and I had to stop. And so I just quit. Didn't think that there was anything on earth that could out drink a Marine, but I was wrong. Um, ski patrol, drinking culture. Uh, sorry to all my Marine buddies out there, but um, it's, um, it's excessive to a fault. And that higher power for me is the only way I can be sober because I tried it. I tried it on self-will. And my life on self-will is a dumpster fire. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Wes Gregg. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation, with additional sustaining support from Gordini. We keep you outside longer. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Now, that's a familiar sound to many of us that work in the snow and avalanche industry. Well, what's different here? Well, I'm Wes. And I'm an alcoholic. The sound you hear is actually a nice cold fresca. Celebratory beers, shots, drinks, they're all pretty commonplace in the after-work activities for those of us who work in this industry. It's a culture, an expectation, a coming of age for some of us. It's a great way to celebrate, yes, but to some, it is the beginning of their undoing. I came up with the idea to have a discussion regarding this topic over the summer and brought my idea to our main dude, Caleb. From that stemmed this. I'm joined here on the podcast by hosts Caleb Merrill, Sean Zimmerman-Wall, and longtime industry professional Jake Hutchinson. We all share a common trait. We are sober from alcohol. We are taking this opportunity to share with you, the listeners, our stories of courage, strength, and hope that if you struggle with substance abuse, you know you are not alone. And just like talking about incident involvements, it's time we open up the floor to conversations like this. Thanks for joining me tonight, guys. Let's kick things off from our fearless podcast leader, Caleb. Why don't you give us a brief introduction and share your story and path to sobriety? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Wes. Thanks for putting this together and I think it's a super important topic. You know, I'm I'm not used to be on being on this side of the microphone. So, and and especially talking about this topic feeling a bit exposed and and vulnerable here. So, uh, I appreciate y'all creating the space for this at this time. I guess my story just kind of starts out as probably many of ours do started drinking socially in high school just with friends partying in the woods in Maine just kind of sneak out of the house and and go get drunk 
and that, uh, you know, that carried on through college. I enjoyed partying with friends, partying outside, partying really any time that I, I could. I think I struggle a little bit with connecting with people. I struggle in social situations. And so I remember when I first started getting drunk, like how it just felt like it was a, it was like a boozy superpower cape that made it easier to talk to, to anybody, you know? And I felt like, I felt like it gave me so much more personality. After college, I started ski patrolling in the Wasatch and that was amazing. It was it was so cool to feel like I was part of something and being part of a ski patrol culture was, it was great. It, I learned so much from so many people there and I, I really felt like I was brought into the fold of that community. We had a wet locker room. So, you know, our locker room culture was, you know, once the last person got in from sweeps, you had a PBR in, in one hand and a shot of Jameson in the other. I'd always really enjoyed drinking whiskey and and that was just kind of solidified there in the locker room. Jameson was a, a pretty good staple, always plenty of it on hand. We just kept giving her in the locking room, locker room most nights. Those are some of my best memories of ski patrolling is just hanging out with friends after doing a bunch of avalanche mitigation and skiing powder and helping people out. Um, and then partying in the locker room and, and I really felt like I was living my best life as the kids say these days. I think there was like a level of connection that's, that's able to be created when your inhibitions are, are kind of diminished through alcohol. And so I think, I think there is some like therapeutic power to, getting together with people and, and becoming a little bit more relaxed. And, and at least for me, it was like a way to connect better with people, but it was ritualized amongst our patrol. And over time, it didn't just stop in the locker room. You know, we'd finish up in the locker room and head to the bar and plenty of people, plenty of folks could just have a couple drink at, drinks at the bar and, and head home, call it a night. And, and I found myself just closing down the bar many nights. Fortunately, I lived in the in the canyon, and so I could just pretty much pinball my way home, bouncing off of snowbanks, and and not really have any fear of getting pulled over, or, or, I mean, I guess there was always the chance I could have injured somebody, but there were definitely like some pretty bleary eyed drives home, and I was always in bed by nine. You know, I, I felt like I could manage um, my drinking by just sleeping it off and getting you know, eight hours of sleep or so. These days, I kind of shudder when I think about what we were doing on some of those early avalanche mitigation mornings and how I probably really wasn't fit for duty. And I felt some solidarity because that was our culture. And that was like everybody around me was probably in the same boat. Um, And we were in it together. There was like this, this like connection through that that was, at the time, it seemed really important to me. Throughout those years, you know, in the, in the summers, I, I fought wildland fire on a hotshot crew based out of Salt Lake. And that, you know, through my 20s and early 30s, that was just such a great way to work and create connection with other people. And the two jobs complemented each other really well. 
I think I had some semblance of feeling like I didn't have a problem because I didn't have any issues with not drinking for 14 or 21 day assignments. But for sure, like we made the most of the, our two days of R&R by tying one on pretty good. You know, a couple couple like pretty pivotal things happened throughout those years, you know, like a line of duty death on my crew was pretty impactful to me. And I, I distinctly remember being in the the critical incident stress debrief and having people telling us how we should be feeling and the things that we should or shouldn't be taking part in as part of kind of moving through the, the grieving process. And I just remember thinking like, what the fuck do you know? Like, we're going to do this how we know how to do it. And we did, you know, we, uh, we just kind of drank our way through it. After I left ski patrol and I started heli skiing out of a lodge, lodge based heli skiing. And, you know, we're right in the, in the thick of it with our, with our guests. Um, sometimes, you know, like you, you never know what type of experience somebody has in the mountains with you, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that like I, I had a hand in facilitating some of the best powder skiing that people have had, you know, and, and they get back to the lodge and they want to celebrate that. And so, you know, as soon as everybody was back and the covers were on the ship, you know, we'd start cracking beers and drinking whiskey and, and people were happy and stoked on, on such a fun day. And it was, it was really great. And, and again, like this connection thing for me was, was really important in connecting with these people that I'd spent the day with and alcohol just made that easier. And, and at that time I thought it was more meaningful. I'd kind of, I'd come across some people in my circles who had given up alcohol and I was intrigued by their stories. You know, I wasn't, I, at that time I wasn't ready to face that I had a, a problem or I maybe needed to redefine my relationship with alcohol. But it, I, I definitely remember kind of thinking when I heard these people's stories that like, huh, like this could be a path for me. When I wasn't working, things were kind of like status quo, but I would find myself often staying up late after my wife went to bed and just continuing to drink after having several drinks with her, you know, like, the norm for me became like saying I was going to the bar for a couple drinks and a couple drinks meant like six to eight and then come home and have a couple more. I think if, if you asked like any of my friends around this time, like if they thought that I had a problem, they'd probably say no, you know, but, but they didn't really see what I was doing when I came home and I just tried to keep the party going by myself. I'd, I'd justify it by, getting up early and being productive throughout the day, maybe going for a run and just kind of sweating out the booze. And, and it was, it seemed really functional to me. Then I found myself cutting, cutting activity short so that I could start drinking. So like maybe not taking another lap on the mountain bike and instead just like cracking a couple beers, at the truck and then going to the bar. And that was like, I was finding myself doing activities just to justify being able to drink afterwards. You know, another example would be like, I would care less about talking to my friend at the bar. They became like a good placeholder so that it made it socially acceptable to be 
drinking at one in the afternoon, you know, and conveniently, you know, I, I was living in, in Oregon. I had moved to Oregon by that time where there's tons of microbreweries, right? And like this, there was this whole craft beer craze. There still is, which I feel like is often framed as some sort of hobby. Um, and it was pretty good disguise of like the ugly truth of what was actually going on with me. I guess like in the, in the winter of 2020, I decided that maybe I wasn't showing up the best I could to take people skiing in the mountains. And I decided that it was just time to redefine my relationship with alcohol. And so I decided that while I was ski guiding for the, the stints that I was at the lodge, I just wouldn't drink. And that changed things for me socially with my coworkers. Um, I felt support from some and from others, you know, it, it seemed like distance was, was created there and I wouldn't hang out as long enough. So maybe those people thought that I was upset at them or wasn't enjoying the culture of that place. And I just, I found that I had to just like remove myself from those situations and, and go home and find something else to do or go for a run. So that was, I found that to be a bit challenging at first, but I was still drinking in my time off um, when I was home or, or on vacation or something. Um, but that year in the middle of March, I had my last drink. I had a, I was, I was at the lodge and, and COVID was just about to shut us down. And there were all these, there were several ski lines. I'd had this ski tour in mind that I'd wanted to do for a long time. And the timing lined up well so that I, I had a day off right before I was going to leave. And, um, so I sat down with a couple of friends and they were drinking some really nice high West whiskey and, and they poured me a couple fingers of it and, and drank it down. I went for an amazing ski tour the next day and, uh, I haven't had a drink since. And I can really say that it's the best change I've ever made in my life. It was really easy for me to hide behind alcohol and hide from things that I didn't want to deal with, hide from my insecurities, hide from loving myself, hide from accepting myself, hide from, you know, being accepted by other people. And so I, I feel like I've through this, I've kind of realized that what I was actually seeking was just connection and acceptance. And it just kind of got out of hand and, and it wasn't, it's no longer the right path for me to, to find that connection and acceptance from other people. So, you know, for me, I found it helpful to take, take it in small chunks, you know, like I'd go a few days without drinking and then, and then I go a week and then I go a month and, and, um, and for me, that was like really a nice way to do it and, and kind of build on, on some progression of, of knowing that I could function just fine and be accepted from people by people, um, without alcohol. You know, I imagine that some of these people that, that were kind of like role models for this are probably listening to this and, and you probably know who you are and, and I appreciate your help and and support through this. On a sadder note, I had a friend die this, this summer who I, who I used to ski patrol with and he was living with a lot of pain in his life and, you know, numbed 
himself with alcohol and drugs and and um unfortunately you know he's no longer with us in a big part because of because of that because of his addictions and and it makes me super sad and uh you know i just i don't want to see that happen to other people and and i think it's something that we don't talk about enough in our industry and and it's so embedded in our culture and not just the ski culture but just within life you know it's so socially acceptable to drink and and it's really easy for for some people to have it get out of hand you know i i um i'm a bit envious of those that can keep it in check and just have a good time with it and and call it a few and and actually have a few be a few but for me it just that wasn't the case so i'm happy to be here and and happy to share my story and thanks everybody for listening yeah thanks caleb and thanks for sharing that story uh we're all so glad you're here man (laughs) um I know it's never easy to share these stories as part of your path. <clears throat> I know I'm proud of you. I'm proud to have you as a pal. You're an inspiration. Now, Sean, you care sharing your story about, you know, who you are and maybe a path on how you decided to put down that drink. Yeah, and I'll see if my voice holds out for this session. Yeah, the the story that Caleb just shared is not dissimilar from mine. You know, I grew up drinking moonshine in the Tennessee Hills, and I moved out to Utah sometime around 2005. Um, but like like living in Tennessee, when I moved to Utah, the, the drinking followed me. It was just part of uh, what I did because it was the thing to do. Uh, fortunately, I quit smoking cigarettes, although it doesn't sound like it right now. <laughs> um, the... The ability to come out here and kind of get a fresh start from that was actually really nice, but I had that habit of drinking follow me. And I'd say that it was more a sense of wanting to be the cool guy or be fitting in with the cool people, with people I thought were cool. I still think the people I drank with were pretty cool, but at this point, I think, uh, you know, I was uh, able to get a job at a ski area, just fell ass backwards into it. And, uh, that was that was the culture that existed there as a lift operator. You know, um, it was real easy to finish bumping chairs for the day and go have some drinks and then go down and study and still make good grades at the U. What that became uh, for me was not really a release or an escape per se. Again, it was just kind of like it was the thing to do. And I would drink beer and I would get down on some different whiskey or tequila, but hard liquor never really did it that great for me. About the only one I could really uh, imbibe with any regularity and not get sick was uh, Fernet. I don't know if you've spent much time in Argentina, but Fernet and Coke is quite good. So while I was, uh, while I was a lifty, that was the thing to do. Then I became a ski patroller, and it was really the thing to do. And uh, I actually met two of the other people on this podcast through ski patrolling. So I guess it's not all bad. Um, and probably with a beer in my hand the first time. But working as part of a patrol where it was part of that culture, 
it just felt good to come to the locker room and, and be part of the debrief, even if it was a fine day of powder skiing. But what alcohol did for me was counteracted by it being an accentuator of my anger. And I've had an anger issues for many years, definitely as a youth stemming from my parents' divorce, being held in check mostly through pot smoking during my college years. But certainly as I aged and became more of a professional, I tended to hold the anger in a lot more and alcohol would usually not bring it out while I was imbibing, but certainly afterward. Like my hangovers were angry. And that was a problem. Um, specifically for my spouse and uh, what would eventually be my children. And I remember distinctly uh, a couple occasions where I saw my anger mirrored back at me by my son. And that hit me really hard. So with that, I think that I just am not able to uh, really express in any words how that impacted me. and. I knew that it was a problem and I had to stop. And so I just quit. And that was sometime around 2021, maybe in May. I think it was Mother's Day, actually. And it helped. But it didn't solve the issue of anger. But it took away a catalyst. And, uh, uh, and that was enough. And throughout the remainder of that year, I found, you know, other people who were trying to also jettison alcohol from their routine. And unbeknownst to each other, we kind of came to the same conclusion. It just wasn't serving our higher purpose anymore. And so what that enabled was somebody to bounce it back and forth ideas with about how not having alcohol in our lives was actually suiting us much better. And Things were going pretty well. <clears throat> but in uh, August of 2021, our snow safety director at Snowbird took his life. And I wasn't there. Nobody was. But it's hard to believe that it wouldn't have been alcohol-induced depression that drove him to that. And that particular incident really hit me hard. Um, And I don't think I've ever been so distraught about something in my life. He was a good man and he taught me a lot and we had a great friendship and he helped a lot of people be safer in the mountains. Unfortunately, a lot of that grieving process afterwards for the group was with a beer in hand or something else. And at that point I had jettisoned alcohol. So being part of it, I got to see just how destructive alcohol was. But it helped. It helped those individuals cope. And so I can't knock them for that. All I could be there was to grieve in unison with them in my own way. What came out of that, though, is um, a peer support network that our ski patrol has full financial support from the management and full uh, morale support from the ski patrol. Being part of a peer support network and working through challenging situations with our coworkers 
has undoubtedly saved somebody's life. It may not have it may not have kept them from drinking alcohol, but it certainly made a difference. And moving on from alcohol, still dealing with anger, I found other ways to continue to seek therapy, whether it be talk therapy or even as recently as last October, ketamine-assisted therapy that really helped work through the anger issues and not move back towards anything like alcohol. And I've been fortunate to be really supported by my peer group and have a very supporting and forgiving spouse and children. And while my story is not unique, it's mine. It's evolving. Um, I can say with a straight face that I don't miss it at all. And I haven't lost the connection that I had been seeking. And maybe I'm still cool. You can tell me. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And we'll see how the recording sounds on the other end. Uh, Man, I think you're pretty cool, Sean. I think you're pretty cool. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for sharing that story. And it's inspiring for dads everywhere, right? Our our kids are always looking up to us, and, and, um, and it's important that we're there for them. It's also good to know that you've found resources for yourself and your, your peers to help you get through this. And the support of your family is always good. Now, how about you, Jake? Do you care to share your story of sobriety? Um, yeah. Mine's very similar to what was just shared, although it starts earlier. Let's say in junior high is where I really started um, drinking and um, then was fortunate to go to a um, a um, high-end private high school. And um, one of the things that comes with high-end private high schools is the partying goes to the next level. And, um, you know, I... I, uh, I experimented with a lot of things and did a lot of stuff in high school that led to a, um, I went in the military, I went in the Marine Corps and, uh, you know, the Marine Corps being in the infantry in the Marine Corps, you know, we'd work hard five days a week and then we drink the other two. And, um, you know, I still have photos of hotel rooms in San Diego where the bathtubs are just full of beer and whiskey and, anything else you might imagine. And, and then we'd go back to Camp Pendleton and start all over, you know, for a while I was at a barracks across the street from the E-Club. So it was really easy to um, go across the street to E-Club. You know, when you're 18 and you have a military ID, you can drink beer on base. So we'd all get drunk and, you know, all we had to do was crawl 35 feet across the road back to our barracks and wake up at 4 a.m. and take a cold shower and go for a five-mile run. And um, we were fine. Life was good. We were invincible. We were Marines. And um, I started making some other life choices. I was coming back to Utah, reserves, going to go to school. I was going to be a helicopter pilot. And um, I got hit by a car. It was a random thing. And, um, I was doing construction, trying to make ends meet, got hit by a car 
And before I knew it, I was medically separated from the Marine Corps. And uh, I had been dabbling in ski patrolling um, kind of to make ends meet and uh, made a quick pivot and suddenly became a ski patroller. And um, I didn't uh, didn't think that there was anything on earth that could out drink a Marine, but I was wrong. Um, Ski patrol, drinking culture. Uh, Sorry to all my Marine buddies out there, but... um, it's um it's excessive to a fault as as sean and caleb have already talked about um you know and i really quickly got to a point where um being the hardest drinking last person standing at every ski patrol party and in the bar every night was part of my identity and the other part of my identity was being the first one in the locker room in the morning and the first person breaking trail, always pushing harder and farther than anyone else. Um, you know, my nickname was the warrior on the patrol in those early days. And, um, you know, I look back at it with mixed feelings to this point. Um, you know, a, a couple of the things that happened to me, um, I should throw out there is, you know, I also, on top of addiction, diagnosed with CPTSD and I have numerous traumatic brain injuries. And, um, when you spin those things up in a, in a mixing bowl with addiction and alcoholism, um, it's sometimes hard to tell what's what and what's causing what and what's going on. And, um, I learned at a very early age from some bullying and some other things to compartmentalize everything in my life. And I never learned to grieve. And the Marine Corps took this young, malleable, malleable, um, person. And, um, they fed on it. I became a master of compartmentalizing things. I didn't feel anything. Um, you know, the higher the stress, the situation, um, the calmer and cooler I was under stress. Cause I just put it away and I put it away, you know, lots of accidents, lots of incidents, lots of things over my career that I just never grieved for. Um, Got out of ski patrolling in 2010 after um, an inbounds avalanche accident that killed a young man. We saved somebody and it kind of, everything really spiraled from there. There was a seven-year lawsuit. There was a bunch of stuff. I've, I've talked on another podcast with Caleb about the incident and the aftermath. And um, I became a full-time avalanche instructor and... At first, I thought getting away from the ski patrol culture was going to be good for my drinking. Um, I've got to say that I never thought I had a drinking problem. I had these metrics in my head. You know, I was never late for work. I never needed a drink during the day. I was never shaking and twitching. You know, I had all these things in my head that I thought defined what being an alcoholic was, and I wasn't any of those things. And so, like, I was fine. And, And I had... You know, I had quit here and there for various reasons. You know, I'd quit for 30 days to go climb something in Alaska or I'd quit for a week on a dare or something. I always kept telling myself that I wasn't addicted because I could quit whenever I wanted. But I always started up again. And, you know, it's it's interesting when you look back at that, how you kind of start justifying to yourself. And, and I'll, I'll echo something Caleb said. A lot of my friends were shocked when I quit drinking and I'll get to that moment that I, that I thought I had a problem. And, and one of the things I realized is like, you know, we'd go to the bar and we're all drinking together. No one's really paying attention to what everyone else is doing and how much they're drinking. But 
someone would get up and go to the bathroom and I'd order two shots and I'd slam two shots and they'd be back and they'd think we were just there having the same beers together. You know, I got really good at hiding it. And um, I'm not even sure I was consciously aware that I was doing it. I, I kind of have come to realize a lot of this in hindsight. You know, fast forward to teaching avalanche courses and going through this lawsuit and um, a good friend of mine that I worked a lot with it was not uncommon for us to um, teach all day and go to his house or my house and polish off a fifth or more whiskey and a couple of beers and wake up and be right back at it the next day and then do the same thing night after night after night. I can't tell you how many fifths of whiskey we put down between us um, in very short periods of time. And um, that went on forever. And I just, I really, you know, my inability to grieve, my inability to actually feel anything um, I just kept feeding this myth, this character I created that I was this hard drinking, hard charging avalanche professional. And um, I, 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 I felt like I needed to have that to be accepted in the community. And, um, and I think there's a lot of implicit peer pressure to drink, to be part of the community. Fast forward to August 27th, or August 2021, Sean already talked about one suicide. I had another friend, man, Zach and I were friends since I was 12 or 13. Zach committed suicide about 24 hours before um, the patroller from Snowbird. And um, I was already psychologically kind of losing my grip on reality. There was a bunch of stuff going on in my life. I had been on about a 17-day bender. At that point, I was still working. I was still functioning, but I realized things were going badly. Um, I, and in between those two suicides, a friend of mine from the Marine Corps died of COVID. Everything kind of fell off the edge. My partner approached me that night, and I don't remember any of this. I've been told it after the fact and said that we needed a break. And um, I s lost it. I don't need to get into a lot of details about what happened that night, but suffice it to say, there were two very brave people that prevented me from taking my own life that night. In the morning, this place where I was working and living, I pretty much got kicked out of. And I packed up all my stuff and they handed me back my guns and I took my dog and I drove away. And my plan that morning, I knew exactly where I was going to go. I knew the parking spot on the side of the river. Um, and I was going to finish what I hadn't been able to do the night before and take my life. And my big crux was my dog. I didn't know what to do with the dog. I couldn't leave him out there. Um, I couldn't I couldn't shoot him. I couldn't do those things. I remember driving through Oak Creek, Colorado, and I, and I think I was still drunk. I had, dr had had so much to drink the night before. I think I was still drunk. Trying to find someone to take my dog. And there was no one there. And as I drove out of Oak Creek on the 20 mile road, there was a bike accident, two road bikers, and they were all alone. And there's not really phone service there. I remember driving past them. I have weird fragmented memories in my head. At first I thought they were fixing a flat tire. One bike was upside down and they were sitting there kind of weird. And, um, I, I just drove right past them and about a quarter mile down the road, something in my brain kicked in and I realized that the one, that one guy was bleeding bad. 
and um, I put my truck in reverse and I reversed back down the highway and I stopped and I went over and, and the friend who wasn't hurt just was in complete shock. He didn't know what to do. And the other guy, he was a mess. You know, um, you guys are first responders. You know, that look, that gray look like this person is dying. This person is sick. They need help. And he had a, a pretty serious head injury. He's bleeding pretty badly. I remember his bike helmet just, just being, I, I don't know how he survived. I actually don't know to this day that he survived. Um, and I, my first responder EMT, part of my brain kicked in and I, I got the bleeding kind of under control and I started asking him some questions and I got the friend to hike up the hill to a point where he could make a phone call. And I sat there with this guy for just short of 45 minutes before the first ambulance showed up. And um, I was pretty sure he was going to die on me. And I, um, it's very, it's still very surreal to me. Um, we packaged him up and put him in the ambulance and everyone was gone. And then I was just there, me and my dog on the side of the road. And I started to drive. And within about a mile, I I remember very vividly deciding that I wanted to live. It wasn't that the suicidal iterations went away or ideas, ideations went away. There was a, there was a choice. Nope. I want to be alive. Within the hour, I, I realized that I had to quit drinking, like being alive and continue to drink were not compatible with the, with one another. And, and I, you know, I was super hyper-focused initially on the alcohol and, you know, realizing now that alcoholism for me was just a symptom of these other things going on in my life. And unfortunately, it's a it's a symptom that comes with its own consequences and its own realities and its own negative stuff. And um, I called a friend, actually the friend I used to drink those fists of whiskey with. Um, he'd been sober for five years at that point. Told him I needed help, told him I needed to quit drinking, and he was kind of an asshole to me, which turned out to be the the greatest gift he could have given me. He asked me some really hard questions. If you've ever driven Highway 40 across the Western U.S. from Craig, Colorado to Salt Lake City, there's whole long stretches of straight road and no phone service. And um, I had a lot of time to think and I made the choice to quit. I, I quit cold turkey. I've never gone back. I didn't go into AA. I didn't do any of those things. Um, I just quit. It wasn't easy. It's still not easy sometimes. Um, but you know, I'm August twenty seventh, twenty twenty one was my is my sober date. That whatever time that morning, I made that choice. And um, you know, for me, getting sober was the first step, and then confronting PTSD and learning how to manage that was step two. And then starting to understand how these thirteen or fourteen serious TBIs have impacted my life and and trying to understand like which parts of my life are related to which problem or which which disorder or 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 whatever you want to call it. Um you know and and I um like everyone else there's a couple of really key people that um I, I could not, I would not be here if they hadn't propped me up and let me lean on them. You know, through this process, dealing with these other things, I got introduced to originally ketamine <clears throat> therapy, and I've gone deeper into psychedelic medicine and plant medicines. have had some really great success with some of that. It's, it's an ongoing process. It doesn't end. With my friend Ray, we founded the Warriors Healing Network. We founded the Warriors Healing Network to... Um, help facilitate vets and law enforcement 
um, and eventually first responders to get some of this help for some of these things. It's been a hell of a journey. I guess the reason I'm here is I grabbed Caleb at ISSW at, at a social hour. And I just asked the question, I, was, I said, how many people in this room you think are struggling with some level of alcoholism, but there's this implied pressure to participate? You know, everything we do is sponsored by breweries and alcohol, even a casual, let's go grab a beer. And I didn't have anyone I looked up to or that was a leader in the industry when I was young to show me that I didn't have to do that. And I, I got sucked in and, and, you know, nobody, nobody sat on my chest and put a bottle in my mouth. That was all choices I made, but maybe I would have made different choices if I would have seen different options out there. And I think that, you know, it's really important and everyone's, I think the other part of this that's really important is I think sobriety is very personal. You know, what I define as sobriety might not be the same as Caleb. For me, it's, it's, it's alcohol. i fully abstain 100% from alcohol. You know, other people have different definitions of it, but I think I think the question you have to ask yourself is are you being true to yourself and are you being honest with yourself? Because it doesn't really matter if Caleb's definition of sobriety and mine are the same as long as we're being true to ourselves and honoring the path and the work that we're trying to do then then it, it works. And, and and the last thing I'll throw out and I'll shut up is you know, I've I've got to a point where I feel like I could have a responsible relationship with alcohol in my life. And I ask, I have a simple question that I weigh and I ask myself, you know, what does alcohol possibly have to offer me? What can I gain from drinking alcohol again? And I can't think of anything. And then I ask myself what I stand to lose and I stand to lose everything that's important to me, including my life. And it makes it a very easy choice anytime I'm confronted with it. Wow. Awesome. Thanks, Jake. Yeah. So much of that, I think, resonates with many of us here. You know, uh, our listeners don't get to see us on this on this call, just nodding silently as we reflect on our own choices and our own lives and our own paths. And it's so great to know that you've created this group, uh, the Warriors Group for Vets and, and uh, Police Officers, First Responders, it's just so imperative. And I think that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to bring this topic to light was exactly what you described at ISSW. You know, you walk into these social events and as a sober person, regardless of what that sobriety looks like, you look around and you wonder to yourself, how many other people share the same story that I have? That one drink is too much. But a thousand's not enough. And that brings me to my story. Um, I'm Wes, and I am an alcoholic. And I do go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that is my path. My path for me is one of a higher power. And that higher power for me is the only way I can be sober. Because I tried it. I tried it on self-will. And my life on self-will is a dumpster fire. And and when my life starts to go back into that, even in sobriety, I step back and I look at myself and I say to myself, what is it that's causing me to feel overwhelmed and to feel like my life has turned into a dumpster fire? And I ask my higher power to help identify that and help me figure out a way as to what can I do to make changes. The story of how I came into drinking is not unlike anybody else. 
you know, we we're all around the same vintage. Some of us are a little older, some of us are a little, little younger. But in that era of the 80s and 90s, when we were growing up, that that was the culture. Our parents, I, for myself, I know I can speak for myself. My parents were big partiers. It seemed like that was the thing to do. So as soon as I got that first taste of alcohol at 12 years old, nine years old, and saw the power that it gave me to be that cool kid, to be that guy that can just do whatever and say whatever and be a lot of fun, and all this stuff, just, just fueled that fire and that ego to be like, well, this is what I need to do. This is how I need to live. This is how my parents have done it and they're successful. And then I fast forward into my high school years. I finished up high school, ended up having to um, move high schools my last year of high school, which, which uh, spun me into, when I reflect upon it at 16 years old, severe alcoholism. At 16 years old, I started showing up to high school drunk. I would uh, throw parties all the time, and it was always just about, where can I get this next drink? But similar to everybody else, I always made sure I showed up. Whether I was still drunk or not, I was there. If I needed to be there at 7 a.m., I was there at 7 a.m. As I wrapped up my last years of high school and we moved away from my hometown and I lost connection with a lot of my close childhood friends that I grew up with, that's when I entered the ski industry. I had already been a competitive freestyle skier and that party culture was already a part of that, that scene. If anybody recalls the freestyle skiing scene back in the late 90s, early, or sorry, early 90s to mid 90s, it was quite a thing, you know, with the Canadian Air Force and, and it was a thing. And, um, and then you looked at all these ski movies and, you know, I still look back at, you know, my favorite ski movie, uh, Snow What with Mike Hattrop and, and uh, Glenn Plake and Hattrop's got a burnt nose from drinking flaming Zambucas, you know, and these are the things, these are the people that as an athlete, I'm looking up for, and it's no fault of theirs. They're just doing what they do. And I think as a youth, well, that's what I got to do. And so I come into the ski industry as a ski instructor. I get into ski school. And what do I find? Well, in Ontario, we don't have big avalanche missions, stuff like that, like what you guys get in uh, in patrol so actually the cooler area in the ski industry in in ontario anyways from what i saw was in ski school we always thought we were way cooler than the pro patrol but that's neither here nor there but at the end of the day what did we do when the day was over we all started drinking partying getting out there and then being up there and joking about it the next day while we teach the next school group that comes in and half of us are still licked as i proceeded through and became moderately successful as a freestyle coach, my alcoholism and my drug use increased to the point where it impacted my reputation in the industry. And I essentially ended up having to leave the ski industry as a whole, mainly out of sheer embarrassment and, and shame for myself and, the, and for who I had become. And that I had walked around being that I'm this holier than now freestyle skier with all these successful athletes and nobody's better than me and you guys can all get fucked. And that continued on. That pushed me into a, a, a deep state of depression, having to leave a career that I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life doing and, and ended up going into school and going into something different to try to 
you know, change the scenery. And that worked for a bit. I stayed sober on my own accord. I actually managed a pub all through college and didn't drink until my last few years of college. And an interesting thing happened. Started off with one big Lebowski. And then eight months later, I'm drinking every day. Just one drink started it all after a full year of sobriety. I moved out west and and I managed to score a job as a lineman and uh, very similar to any of these uh, physical jobs. You work hard, you party hard. I worked an out-of-town shift, so I, I would um, work a 10-hour day and then we'd party till two or three in the morning and then we'd do it all over again. And then we'd, I'd come home on my six days off and I would just keep the party going. It got the point for me where I, I actually changed my shift at work when I stopped working an out-of-town shift so that I could get home and start drinking. I told my managers, oh, it's because I need to get home and pick up my kids. I used my kids as an excuse to come home and drink. Am I proud of that? No, of course not. But that's what happens. That's what happens to certain people. That's what happens to some people. You know, even as early as yesterday, doing an event for my new business, snow show, bunch of sledders all around. And they all started drinking at noon, you know, at this event. And they're all walking around hiding the drinks in their Tim Hortons cups. And it was hard for me. I'm three years sober. And it was still hard for me, even with the grace of God and Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not that guy that's a recovered alcoholic. I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I will always be a recovering alcoholic. Because for me, to drink is to die. And when I see it, I want it. I want to be able to just hang out and drink like everybody else, but I can't. And my sobriety date is October 24th. Now I got to do some quick math here. 20, 2020, very similar. And I actually got sober so that I could come back into the ski industry. Because I was going to do my level one, my CAA level one operations. And I knew that they were going to be long days. And I didn't want my desire to drink at three o'clock in the afternoon to turn me into an asshole while I was on course for 10 days because I want to get home and get to drinking. I needed to be focused and engaged. So I did it. I did it on my own will. I stopped just then and there. Bang, that's it. I quit. And I made it. I made it through that course. And then I said to myself, well, that wasn't that bad. Well, maybe I'll just go one more month. And then that carried on. And that carried on for 10 months where I did it by self-will. And my knuckles were white every day. Every day was a battle. I almost lost my marriage over it. I almost lost my family. Because, yeah, I wasn't drinking. But I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy about not drinking. I'd moved my date to 365 days. Okay, well, I'm going to go a year. If I go a year, then I know I don't got a problem. But when you're white knuckling by every single liquor store, 
And the idea of walking into a liquor store just fills you with anxiety. That's not normal. You know, listening to Jake's story, talking about having that bike accident and coming across it and then something going off in his mind and saying, you know, I need to make a change here. I had a similar experience. You know, I'd never had a tattoo ever in my life and I wanted to get my wife was gone. She approved it. I managed to find this guy locally. I said, hey man, you got time to do this quick tattoo? He said, yeah, I should be able to square you in. And that Saturday I called him at two o'clock because he said he'd call me at two o'clock. Well, it was two or five actually. And he hadn't called. So I panicked because I was bored. I was by myself. There's nobody here in the house and I wanted to drink. And this was going to be my escape to get away from that. I needed to go do something. And I walked into that tattoo parlor and we chit chatted for a bit. And that gentleman asked what the significance of my tattoo was. And that day I was 10 months sober on my own free will. And he said, oh, wow, that's neat. I'm six years sober. And I go to AA. Have you ever come to AA? He said, no, I don't need any of that God bullshit. And he said, oh, no, man, it's not like that. I said, oh, really? He's like, it's what, it's what you want it to be. Look at me. Now, I'll describe my friend here. He's a big fellow. Just you close your eyes and picture a tattoo artist. And he fits that stereotype. And you think to yourself, hold on a second. This guy doesn't seem like a religious guy. And he says, good orderly direction. That's all it is. And it's whatever it is for you. So that next morning, this was on a Friday. That next morning, he invited me to an AA meeting. And I walked through those doors and I thought to myself, I'm not an alcoholic, you know, like I'm not, I don't, I don't need recovery. I haven't lost my job. I haven't lost my license. I haven't lost my family. I haven't been arrested. I've never been in a drunk tank. I don't have a problem with alcohol. But can I put it down on my own will? Doesn't seem like it. And it was at that moment that my life changed. I took a three-year cake this weekend, actually, was my three-year birthday. Um, and um, during that conversation, I reflected on something that was told to me during that first meeting that still holds true to me today. And when I talk to, to sponsees, I ask them the same question. I challenge you to go home, take off all your clothes, and stand in front of a full-size mirror and hold your arms out, stare at yourself straight in the eyes and say, there is nothing greater than this. And say it with a straight face. And if you can do that, then by all means. But I know I can't. I couldn't even look myself in the eyes in a mirror, let alone try to tell myself that I'm the best thing out there. Sobriety for me in Alcoholics Anonymous it's not for everybody, but it has been around for a long time and it has worked for a lot of people. And I think it's important that we share the message that there are other paths and my sobriety, like has already been said on this podcast, is different than Sean's. It's different than Jake's. It's different than Caleb's. It's my sobriety. And it's the things that I can control. That's all I can do. The things that I can change. My sobriety relies 
on giving it away. And the way that I'm utilizing and leveraging to give that away is by sharing it on this podcast. If any listeners out there are familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous, yes, there is a a tradition that says that we will not speak on radio or television, but I'm speaking about my sobriety. I'm I'm not talking about anybody else's sobriety. I'm speaking about my sobriety and how it worked for me. And for me, the 12 steps of AA worked. Believed in a higher power. I made a fearless moral inventory of myself. And I looked back and I identified fears. I identified selfishness. And I try to work on those things, and it's a constant thing. I made a list to the people that I hurt, and I'm still going through that list, trying to repair that damage. Because even at my age, I started drinking so young that my list stems back to people that I went to elementary school with. And it's not them that I need to apologize to. It's their parents. For the worry that they had, that they were hanging out with somebody that would facilitate the parties. And then, like I said, is sharing this message with other people and letting people know that there are solutions out there. And that if you feel like you can't have a drink and just leave it at one, there's rooms full of us and you're not alone. You can see just on this podcast alone, there's three of us that are hosts that are sober, sober today. We can't speak about tomorrow. I know I was sober today. That's all I can do. I can just be sober today. Because today is the tomorrow that I worried about yesterday. And with that, I'll start it down. I'd like to just add in there that uh, Laura McGladry uh, joined us here through the call and has been listening in to our stories. And Laura, do you want to uh, share some information on your background and your history and how it pertains to this topic? Well, let me say that I um, it just am feeling the privilege of being here in the snow cave with you. And I think what you're offering that's tremendous is um, this really privileged opportunity. And I think especially I'm going to give you just some hats off there in the masculine as well. I always imagine these conversations are happening in snow caves <laughs> um, when you really like let down your guard, that backcountry hut or whatever. But I think I'm getting to listen in and then knowing that we're sharing that people are driving home in their cars that people are skiing and listening, that they're having an, this experience with you. I just want to say thanks for for letting us all in to that conversation. And um, yeah, I think one thing that really stands out is this. Um, so I'm so just a, a little bit about me. I'm a, a family and psychiatric nurse practitioner. So I grew up um, in in uh, emergency medicine and I've taught wilderness medicine for decades and worked with ski patrol for decades, search and rescue. And I now uh, work at University of Colorado um, at the Stress Trauma Adversity Research and Treatment Center. Um, and my expertise is um, 
this psychiatry, actually, I don't say that word very often, but I'm a, a prescriber and I work with first responders, law enforcement, EMS, and then austere responders, our people, um, heli ski guides and, um, and forecasters and ski patrollers. And, and um, so I think it's incredible. We talk about stress and trauma. Well, I do, and probably too much. So forgive me if you've heard me on a podcast too many times, but my jam, you know, I got into this because I was going to rid the whole world from traumatic stress, which, you know, it turns out um, is a part of life, but this is so much part of our culture. I mean, one of the things that stood out in my early years of emergency medicine and Jake, my, I won't call you my old friend. I'm going to start using the term longtime friend. Um, I think that's better for us. But um, this idea about having people that we look up to who are sober in a culture and community where, I mean, I caught myself thinking, oh, it's like being in a snow cave with you with the scotch. And to be fair, I just got back from Scotland yesterday. And you you may hear family life in the background here, um, but it's so built in, right? Like if it's going to be fun, if we're going to have a good conversation, we're going to have a scotch in our hand or a flask or something. So I, I noticed that even listening. But what I was going to say is in my early years um, at university, well, I shouldn't say where I was, but in the ER as a baby nurse, um, the nurses I wanted to be like when I grew up were the nurses who uh, we work nights then and after work we'd meet the other nurses from a local hospital we'd get off work we'd go down there and it was nine in the morning and we are already like I just was watching and throw back one after and I was I was early in my career thinking should these guys be driving home right now and it was so much of the culture that the people I wanted to be just like were also teaching me how to manage stress and to be included and to be part of it, that's that's what fit in. And early on my patrol days, I was also thinking, remembering a, um, a pediatric fatality. And maybe debriefing was around them, but we all went to the bar afterwards. It was like, okay, everybody ready? We'll wait for you. We'll go together. We're going to take care of this. And so I I just want to acknowledge for folks who are listening and, and you know, I work with a lot of ski patrols and a lot of heli guiding operations and a lot of rescue. Now, I mean, when one of the major ski areas said no more beer in the locker room, I was kind of worried, like, well, well, how is community and connection going to happen? And so even now after fatality, when we do a in after action review, we had to start learning to stock the fridge with LaCroix and putting pizza in there because that was our cultural ritual. And so that's that's something that was coming up and maybe something to ask you all what you think as you've been walking through it. But that's one of the big challenges that that I see. I, I do treat a lot of folks for for trauma. And I would say most of the time there's some kind of a, an addiction um, component. And addiction, of course, isn't always alcohol or isn't always drugs. For some of us, the addiction is to going higher and getting farther and, you know, strapping on the GoPro. And for some of us, it's like just working and helping other people, which is all these are socially acceptable addictions. I mean, like you said, you could be drinking already and no one was going to, was going to tap you and say, don't do it. Some of these addictions too, where you're skiing higher and going farther, people are like, that was sick, man, do it again. You're like, no, that my, uh, my little my little detector for addiction addiction very often for folks will be whatever it is 
if you can't not do it. So for instance, I see this a lot after people lose partners and after big things happen, they'll just go ski something crazy in conditions where they shouldn't be out there. If you try and stop them, and we've all done this, right? Instead of them being like, oh, thanks. I, I appreciate your insight. It's get the fuck out of my way. I'm going to do it. You can come with me or not. And, and so that always helps me. Like if you can't not do it, it's probably doing something for you. And if you don't mind me going on in this observation that I see clinically, I really have a reference, a reverence for what addiction achieves for us. So I work with cops, you know, this is not an unfamiliar story that I get a call from a police chief saying, hey, I got a guy at my desk here. He's been in for 20 years. He's one of my best guys. I just had to give him a DUI. And of course, he ends up on the news and everyone's like, what's with that guy? This is the same with patrollers, right? The same with our people. And I've heard their stories in their own, my own little snow cave, which is what I call my, you know, that's my office where I get to really hear salt of the earth humans telling me the story of their lives. And, you know, that guy probably every time he puts on the uniform, his own physiology goes, I can't do this anymore. I can't get on this helicopter again. I don't want to get my patrol car again. I don't like the way it feels. If you've worked with his dress continue, they're pushing into the red. They, there's, it's too much for them. And yet he's got three more years on a pension and he's trying to put a kid through college and he's been in it for so long. This is the only job he could do anymore. I'm like, that's a survival tool, man. That's how he gets his job done with a tremendous amount of pain every day. And I, I guess it just feels important to me to say that I have a reverence for how adaptive that is and what you're trying to achieve. And I think the adage that I always work with clinically for myself is that all of us, all the people that we love on patrol, are all those people that you said already were, it's noon already, and they're already drinking, we're always choose, people always choose the best option on the menu. And if there was a better option, they would choose that one. And so my approach to support of addiction and something I'm curious what you all think in our culture now, what's the best way forward? If, if there's, don't, don't just take it away and say, okay, now I'm going to take away your best option. Don't do that anymore. You should stop drinking. Stop drinking or I'll leave you. Stop drinking. You're going to lose your job. As you all know, and I know <laughs> you know this better than I do, it, we got to add something to the menu. We got to add something that feels better, right? That the option opposite of, of um, addiction is not sobriety. I know you've all heard this, but it's connection. What would feel better than what we're doing right now? And I think, you know, that that's a question I, I wondered if I could float back to you gents before we end, because um, I think maybe some people who are listening to this are not the ones who are actually in the throes of the struggle but love someone as I have, who you watch just taking it on more and more. And you know, you know, it's hurting them and you know, you can't really talk to them about it. And you're watching them hurt themselves and you love them so much. And so I guess that's a question. How do we add the next in our culture? How do we add the next best thing on the menu? How do we add? Because I, I firmly believe that 
that the answer is moving towards something, never away, right? So what's, instead of saying, put one hand behind your back and don't do that, like holding out and saying, no, hold this instead. And I, I don't know, maybe that's for another episode, but that's kind of culturally what I, I wonder how we could bring some innovation and, and add something else instead of saying, don't do this, saying, hey, let's do this instead. Like, how do we forge connection? I heard you talk about connection and service and joy of being alive and soaking it in out there. And what's it like to be in the mountains? What's it like to be a patroller without this? I don't know. I, I wonder what you what you all think about that. I, I have a few thoughts. Um, I, I, there's a lot of stuff you just covered there, Laura. And, um, you know, one thing I think is that um, <clears throat> for me, for a lot of things, drinking was an attempt to feel something because um, I was just numb to everything. You know, I um, I was doing making poor decisions in the mountains with a friend of mine and I in hindsight realized that we really were almost they were veiled suicide attempts because it was going to be a lot easier for my family and friends to deal with me dying in an accident in the mountains than with a gun in my mouth um I also think that there's there was a desperate need for community in my life there still is and um Ski patrolling was a really amazing community to be part of immediately on the heels of the Marine Corps. And to be part of that community, I felt like I had to be drinking and partaking. And um, I think that's the real challenge. And Caleb sort of mentioned it. I think I think the biggest challenge for me I've realized is, is – one is drinking buddies aren't your friends always. And I really had some hard realizations that people I used to spend a lot of time with, um, our entire relationship centered around alcohol, whether we were ski patrollers and coworkers or anything else. And, you know, we're, we're friends, we're cordial, but we don't spend time together anymore because that was our relationship. And, um, I, the other thing I realized is I know in the days leading up to my incident, I knew I needed help. People asked me if I was okay, if I needed help. I did not know how to say yes, and I didn't know what I needed. I didn't know how to ask for it. And um, I think that's been one of the biggest challenges is I've, I've helped a friend of a friend try to navigate some of this stuff. And, and you know, the big realization I had is that until I made the choice that I was going to quit, there was no program, there was no book, there was no self-help, anything that was going to help me quit until I made that choice. And so... I, you know, I was, as you know, Laura, I mean, I, no secret here, like I was pretty lost for, you know, six, seven, eight, nine months and desperately trying to find that thing to fill that niche. Exactly what you're, you're asking, you know, what do we hand someone? Cause you were taking this thing away. And, um, <clears throat> I don't know, you know, for me, it was a ketamine therapy session that kind of brought me out of the dark a little bit and helped me stand on my own. And, and what I've realized is like, I don't know that I've necessarily replaced anything in my life, but I've started to find joy in a lot of things that I kind of did peripherally, you know, and I've found focus in things that I did peripherally. And I think that, I think they're very unique. And I also, I sent so many damn post-incident debriefs 
where they started out with good intentions and they were moderated by a doctor or somebody. And as the alcohol and the night went on, um, it all the good intentions got lost and feelings started getting hurt and everything um, ended up in the same place it always did in the bar with people driving home drunk or sleeping in locker rooms or whatever. And um, I don't know if I have an answer, but I, I do think that um, the desperate... The community is so tight, as everyone in this call knows. Like you get your your group of people, whether you're mountain guides or ski guides or ski patrollers, or nurses or professional athletes, you're so tight with everybody, and it feels weird when you're the one person not doing the thing or the two people not doing the thing. And um, I don't know how we change that culture all the way around. And I also just I just look around. I was just at a a, a ski patrol training. Um. I'm either really old or ski patrollers are really young now. Um, and I look at these young people that are either just out of college or maybe even younger and these incredible um, potential and career they have in front of them. And, and what did I see as soon as, as soon as five o'clock hit and the day was done, you know, tailgates come down and, and it's immediately the behavior hasn't changed in the 30 years since I started. And I want to just reach out and say, you know, you don't have to do this, but I also respect the fact that obviously the vast majority of people in this industry do okay with alcohol. They have a healthy relationship and they can manage it, but there's, um, there's those that don't. And I don't know what the answer is to replace it with, but I do think that the community is so important because that's what I lost when I had my incident is I lost the community I was part of. And in so many ways, that was more devastating than any of the other things I was going going on in my life in the short term. And, you know, I've since found a, a much healthier, more supportive place to be in my life. And and that's what I needed. But I don't know how to replace that in, in the skiing culture. Culture. But I think something you just said is something that we can walk away with, which I think in our culture that anytime it's binary, you have to choose between having community or not drinking, we can see an opportunity for something to change, right? You can be with your friends or you can not drink because many people I know in that early, as you've all shared early on, it's like, well, I have to walk away from all of these things. I Let's just, and we won't name any names, but we were recently at a conference together where we were doing a panel on, on stress impact and some of the innovations, and it was competing with happy hour. And we thought, well, that's pretty funny. There's your choice, right? <laughs> like, come learn about like resilience and next steps or go to happy hour and people will probably self-select. And that's okay. That's, that was nobody's fault. That's part of our culture. But you'll see when you start looking from those I see you mentioned debriefings. I mean, I think that's something we're trying to change. One very easy thing that I really push patrols that I work with is put food in there, man. People will gather around food. And now we're starting new. These are all rituals. I'm going to shout out to Rocky Mountain and the, the climbers, climbers there. I, you know, I've been known to um, go look in people's fridges when I rescue work, you know, come to your rescue catch and be like, cool spot. What's in your fridge? Because food is so good. And they have a, you know, they had an ice cream sandwich thing going, maybe it was an addiction, but after a really good rescue, they come back and um, grab a LaCroix and ice cream sandwich and go out and eat. And I'm like, I'm pretty convinced that in a generation with those new patrollers, if we started replacing some of those traditions, like the Crested Butte Pig Roast, I know there's a lot that goes on there, I'm sure, but like these traditions where it's like, we're going to get together, like the fire at, um, in Yosemite, 
campfire tradition, you know, after we do something big there and, and people get together and have a fire, like there's, there's room for creativity here, I think in our culture. And that's what I mean by let's start handing out some new things that we could do that also feel really good. I I do think that one thing I've noticed, um, and I have non-alcoholic beers in my van all the time now. And so when I go to these events, I'll, I'll crack an NA beer. Um, it's amazing how that brings some of the social discomfort and not that I feel that other people around me feel when I'm holding that thing in my hand. It, it, I also get a lot of like, Oh, I thought you were sober. It's like, well, yeah, it's, it's not alcoholic and it's back to the personal choices thing. But, um, it's amazing how having that option, I think changes, you know, um, it's starting to permeate the culture a bit. You know, you go places and you start to see there's other options, non-alcoholic options starting to happen. It's one of the things I threw out at the, I'm on the A3 board. Like, have we ever thought about having one of these non-alcoholic brewery spots or something or be part of something? Because I think that, um, you know, it's, 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 the stigma is not, not as bad as it was, but it's definitely still there. And and I agree, like food, all those things. I, I never met a ski patroller, dude, wouldn't eat free food. <laughs> you know, we're all broke. Um, but yeah, I think it's, the community is so important. And um, and like I said, it's that, it's that implied pressure to participate that is so challenging to navigate, especially when you're young and you're trying to break into this business. There's some there's some tough personalities in this. Yeah, in this I, world. I think you know, like what what I've already reflected on is like what I was seeking was connection, and we kind of keep coming back to that word. And so, um, facilitating those opportunities to have connection, or maybe if you're in a in a room full of your fellow patrollers or guys or whoever, and you can see, you can kind of read the room and see who is like looking for that. And I think leaders within these organizations should do their best to facilitate that connection. And, and I think mentorship programs are a way that can, that can be accomplished. Um, but, or just, you know, I think we, we just need to look out for each other. Right. And, and if you see somebody struggling, then, then try and try and reach across the room, even if you don't know them very well and, and try and connect with that person, see what, see what they need. We all have a lot of needs that, that probably aren't being addressed on a daily basis. And, and then, you know, it's not as like glamorous of a substitute for a drink, but like therapy is very, can be very helpful, um, in creating connection with yourself. And, and, um, I found that to be a good substitute, just talking to somebody who I can really trust. Um, whether that's a therapist or just a, a longtime friend has been really helpful for me. I don't know if that's really an answer to what you were asking, Laura, but I think that's important. Yeah, I think you, you highlighted something for me there as you were talking about connection. I think, um, you know, is I mean, I love shout outs. Don't worry. I'm usually good with your secrets here, but I love to shout out when people teach me something and it was the copper ski patrol. Um, two years ago, they're like, hey, community is a great word. Um, community means we all wear the same jacket, but we're actually working on belonging. And that that word, that pebble really landed all the way for me. That was like, you know, if you go back to the origins of our stories, like weren't so many of us actually looking for belonging in the drinking or in the, you know, whatever we were using. And so 
how can we forge that belonging? And I, I know that word shame's come up quite a few times tonight. Like it, the, that challenge again, that binary is like once you have to, you you want desperately the belonging and now you have to, to leave it to stop drinking. And like, where are the places again, where we can keep offering belonging no matter what you do and belonging without substance like that? That's um, that's kind of juicy for me. I think there's a lot there. You know, I, I, I work now for an organization that, encourages alcohol free days amongst the guides you know and and it's not like a hard and fast rule but i've found some like acceptance in that as people honor those who decide not to drink by everybody else abstaining for a day which is i think is super helpful yeah i agree man i think that's great it's it's interesting when you when you bring up uh we talk about community and and uh for myself as a as a grateful member of alcoholics anonymous I mean, that's exactly what that program does for me. Um, I look at my notes here and it's not something I mentioned, but, you know, when I walked into that room, I felt home. I felt like I belonged. I felt like I had a connection, much like I do with you guys. You guys might not be members of the Alcoholics Anonymous program, but sobriety and, and taking steps towards um, bettering your life and achieving serenity. And most importantly, what we're trying to do right now which is providing a path of helpful, a uh, path of helpfulness for people that that may be struggling, that may be that person standing in the mirror, not being able to look at themselves in the eyes. I think this is the beginning stages. This is how we offer that secondary binary option: is by having peers in these facilities leading the charge of sobriety. Is just starting to build a culture of an alternative. I like the ice cream sandwich. Might be a little cold in Northern BC for ice cream sandwiches. I'm a big candy fan. So I'd always be, I'd never turn down a bowl of candy on a, on a table at a guides meeting. But that's, that's my thought on, on having an option, right? Is, is, is building that community with other, other sober people, but then having exactly that, a different option on the table instead of that jug of beer. You just triggered a thought in me too, Wes. I think that I've had a lot of interesting conversations with folks who, and mostly people I've either worked with or friends who would be like, oh, I'll, you're not drinking. I, I won't drink to support you or or I'm going to take a week. And and it's like, I, I tell people like, like, that doesn't do anything for me. Like your choices, like unless you get in your car and run me over. Your choices around alcohol don't affect me, and 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 like like if you want to not drink, do that for yourself, but don't do that for me. Like I'm fine. Like I can I can walk, I can stand in the social hour at ISSW and hang out and have an NA beer with Sean or or Caleb or or drink a liqueur, whatever it is. Like like I'm fine. I'm okay. And and thank you for like that acknowledgement and thinking of me. But but please understand like you don't need like do that for yourself. Like that doesn't do anything for me and, 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 and just be supportive of me and, and, and be yourself. Like, don't, like, don't act weird around me because I quit drinking. And I think that's the, that's the tough thing, you know, like, like, like I, I, people don't know how to hover, handle sober Jake, which is maybe a testament to how much I was drunk all the time. And, and, and maybe how little people realize I was drunk all the time, but you know, do things for yourself and for your situation and, and honor yourself. Don't, don't think that doing it for me does anything for me and my process. 
Well, it just shows you that we don't actually, there's a social contract there and we don't actually have a rule book. We kind of need to walk people through. I mean, I, I think it's a great example when you're guiding and you have clients and your job is to go drink with them after work, that um, it's provocative. And, and I have many friends who share this with me who don't drink. Like all of a sudden it's like, are you judging me? Should I stop drinking? Am I not drinking enough? And so I think that's night guiding. Absolutely. Like that it's built, it's baked into the cake. And so we actually, you, you gents are pioneers. I mean, when I think you're teaching folks how to do this, we're actually having to treat, teach a whole generation maybe of us how to do this without a drink in our hands. Um, I am, I think I'm lucky in some ways in this way that, you know, in the last year, they've really, the research is very clear that, that no amount of alcohol is healthy for us. And I'm a cancer survivor. So all of a sudden it's like, I'm pretty damn accountable. If I want to have a glass of wine, everyone's kind of like, Hey, you heard that come out. Right. And it's really changed it. Instead of people putting things in your hand, I have more friends who are like, are you sure you really want to do that? I'm like, no, it's cool. I just couple of sips or one of my, whatever. It's, it's interesting to flip the script on that. And I think we're going to have to teach them, but, but one thing I know, and I just, again, want to say thank you one more time. There's a generation of, we didn't have these conversations to listen to when we got into this. There was no Caleb, no Jake. There was no, the guy who's like the best at this and taught me that and showed me the ropes and taught me to ski this line is also sober. And now there will be. And so I just want you to know that you're already changing culture and these conversations are so important. And I'm just so deeply respecting what you're doing here. I wanted to just say it one more time. Thank you. Because you are changing the script now by being leaders and badasses. If I, I get to call you that. I know what you do for your work and your day job and, and, and bringing this to the forefront and the vulnerability to talk about it. That's pretty cool. I'm so excited and I'm so glad, Caleb. Thank you very much for for agreeing, for thinking like, yeah, man, let's do this, and 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 then and then helping the idea grow by bringing in these other people to this conversation. I think, I think it it really drives home the fact that that this is a thing. This is a thing that we need to start to encourage and support and. And and make changes in our industry, and more importantly, in society as a whole. Because it's not just the ski industry that has this mentality, as Jake has alluded to, as my story has alluded to, um, and and Caleb as well with wildfire. Like it's 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 in everything. It's in everything, and and um, some of us make it through. Yeah, Wes. Thanks for facilitating this, and um, and Jake and Sean and Laura. Thanks for being here. Um, this was great. And if there's anybody out there that's listening that, that feels like they need somebody to talk to, you know, drop me a line. You can, you can always contact me and I'm, I'm more than happy to listen. I prefer to listen than talk. So if you just need to get something off your chest about this, please reach out. Yeah. Well said. And I, I would echo that. Um, what Caleb just said, I, you know, something that's gone around the military and law enforcement community a bunch lately, but I'd rather wake up in the middle of the night and listen and be there for you than um, go to another memorial for another friend that, that couldn't reach out. And um, 
you know, I I don't have all the answers, but I certainly can listen and I can point you to some resources that may help you. Yeah, exactly. And I can I can echo echo that. You know, what I have is my experience. I can speak to my experience. I can't speak to anything else than whatever anybody else has ever had happen. But I can tell you my story, and I can tell you how I got to where I am today. That's what I can tell you. I can't tell you how to put a drink down, but what I can tell you is that if you're struggling with alcohol, you have four people here in this podcast right now that would prefer you to pick up a phone instead of a drink if it means the difference between life and death. For me, one drink is death because I know it's not going to stop at one. And I can't thank you guys all enough for joining me on this uh on this subject. I know it's not easy to open yourselves up and um and hang ourselves out there emotionally and spiritually, but it's 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 these types of conversations, just like what Caleb has done with the podcast in itself with regards to avalanche incidents, as I alluded to in the introduction. It's time that we start opening up these conversations with regards to substance abuse, depression, and anxiety. We'll have a series of links to the different uh, methods that we have used, uh, all of us, in the show notes. And uh, with that, I, I thank you all very much for joining me on this conversation. Thanks, guys. Wow. That was an amazing conversation. Pretty hard to keep emotions in check there. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to talk about my story with all of these people. And I couldn't be more thankful to have them here and all of you here. If anybody that you know or yourself struggles with substance abuse, there are resources out there and we're going to put a series of links in the show notes. The key of this episode was to let you, the listener, know and those of you out here that you're not alone and that you don't need to suffer in silence. The one thing I do know is that without my sobriety, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be a host of this podcast. I wouldn't have shifted to working in the avalanche industry. Sobriety has given me the strength and the courage to follow my dreams. And for that, I'm grateful. Music in this episode is provided by Gravy with the track Shabaduba from the album Mountains, Valleys, Places Between. You can find his tracks at gravytunes.bandcamp.com. A big shout out to the designer of our sweet logo, Mike T. You can see more of Mike's work over at miket.com. That's like the tea you drink. MikeT.com. If you want to stay up to date and have a chance to ask a guest a question or just have a link into the conversation, follow us on Instagram or Facebook at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. While you're on the internets there, head on over to your favorite streaming platform, subscribe, rate, and review. Things are looking pretty quiet over there. Why don't you just tell us how we're doing? Or if you have any direct feedback, you can send it to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. 
Thank you all so much for listening. And remember, be safe, have fun. <laughs>